Hi, and welcome to the Vineyard Northwest podcast. At Vineyard Northwest, we aim to be a culture that welcomes heaven to earth by raising up world-changing kingdom leaders. We hope you enjoy this message from our senior pastor, Dan Cochran. I don't know what it was, but when Wilson was uh, praying for mental illness, my wife elbowed me. I don't know what that means. I'm confused right now. So if if I don't start my sermon very well, that's why. If you remember, we're in a series on emotions, and emotions are such a huge part of our lives that uh, it actually was Wilson that really came to this decision that we needed to do a series on emotions and, and how we relate to emotions, how we handle emotions. And if you remember last week when I spoke, I said there were three three things that happen. There's an event. Something happens. A word spoken to us. We have a memory of something from the past. We get a revelation about something. And we, in response to that, we have an emotion. An emotion comes out of that. And then the emotion leads to some form of action. So we said there is an event, an emotion, and then an effect. And the effect could be that my emotion leads me to go talk to someone to clear up a relational issue. Or it could be that my emotion causes me, I make decisions that lead me to withdraw and and draw back and just become silent. The, The effect can be many different things. But the emotion itself comes as a result of the event. And it's not so much even the event as it is, and not so much, it isn't the event It is what I believe about the event. It's what my perception is of the event. It's how I take the tone of voice. It's not the tone of voice, but how how do I interpret that tone of voice? It's how I interpret the look in the eye or or whatever. And I'm thinking here in terms of relational communication type issues that that can uh, occur. Now, God created us emotional. He gave us emotions, and um, it's a good thing. God's emotional. We're created in his image. Uh, You don't have to be created in his image to have emotions. I mean, dogs have emotions. Uh, They're not created in his image. And as we're going to see later, if we get to it, demons even have emotions. And so we as human beings, though, as human beings, we have emotions. Now, emotions are not a problem in and of themselves, in fact, before Adam and Eve sinned, emotions would have just been functioned perfectly. And the more healthy they function, the more blessed we are. And so our, our whole discussion is about how can we function with the healthiest possible emotional state. And, and even when I say that, I'm not saying that we need to strive for perfection in this because we're not going to be perfect. But we do want to be willing to take the next step God has for each one of us in growth when it comes to the whole emotional issue. When they function well, emotions enable us to connect with other human beings. In fact, in Romans 12, verse 15, Paul says, weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. So weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. When my emotions are functioning well, it means I can, I can empathize with you. I can, I can share grief with you and I can share joy with you. And that intertwines our lives and that connects us together. So when I said event, emotion, and effect, there was one part I left out. And that is um, the belief system. 
I alluded to it, but there is a belief system behind the event that leads to the emotion. And, and as we've shared in past weeks, the emotion is really neither good nor bad. It is simply something that has happened to me that should clue me into the fact that there's something else happening deeper inside. And if the emotion is troublesome to me, then that means there might be a wrong belief system that I need to check out and take care of. Let me give you an illustration of that. You know, as leaders in the church, we discuss a myriad of issues regarding the church, the future, you know, issues, ministries, and everything. And an issue came up that we were discussing as a senior leadership team. And so the issue's put out on the table, and I had a strong response to it. I had, and I already knew the answer. And I had a lot of emotion behind it. And, and I'm not sure that all the emotion was seen, but there was a lot of emotion deep inside me over this issue. And even during the discussion, one of the other senior leaders called that out and said, you know, it doesn't seem like you're really open to discussing this. And I think, I, if I remember right, I said something like, yeah, I'm not because I know what we're supposed to do. Now, sometimes that's the case. Sometimes that might just be totally right. I thought I was right at that point. Later that day, God just out of the blue broke into my thinking and brought a memory back to me that at least 10 years before, I had heard a pastor friend of mine talk about the same situation in his church, a similar situation in his church, same issue. And he had told me the solution he came to. And after that meeting and having coffee together and driving away, I thought, hmm, what do I think of how he handled that? And I, you know what I thought? I thought that was wimpy leadership. I thought, what, you know, he should have made a stronger decision than he did. And, and I really negatively judged the decision he had made about that issue. And in doing that, what I did was to set in my mind the answer to that issue in every case. So without even thinking about it, that issue comes up. Have you ever seen one of those movies where there's a little guy inside your brain, like running the computer? That little guy said, oh, wait a second. Didn't we talk about this once before? And he was rummaging through the files, and then he brings up that picture of me thinking, judging my friend's decision. And he said, we already decided this. Hey, we gotta alert him, we've already decided this. He shouldn't be reconsidering this because we've already decided it. And do you know that our brains automatically defend decisions that we've already set in stone? A decision that you've made, a, a declaration that you've made, even something that you might later not mean, your brain says, oh no, we already decided that. And so my brain starts sending all these emotional flares up. It, it, we are there, my brain trying to communicate to me, something's wrong, wait a second, we already decided this, you can't reconsider this. And so I've got all this emotion coming up and, and I, I still think the same thing, or at least I did until this happened. And what I had to do was to say, God, that was just flat out wrong for me to judge my friend. I had no right, I was not in his situation or his position. It was arrogant of me to think that he was making a weak decision. That was just arrogant of me. And God, just release me from that, free me from that, forgive me, whatever language you wanna use. You know the word forgive means to send away. 
And so it means to send away. So send away the guilt of that. Send away the effect of that in my life right now. Free me from that. And so I got freedom from that. And then I'm able to enter back into that conversation without any emotion. I mean, not, not without emotion, but without any, any strong emotion that, you know, I've got to drive a certain direction. And so emotions are like that for us. And what we need to recognize is, uh, uh, Estelle, let's look at Ephesians right now, okay? The Ephesians passage, Ephesians 4. All right. So in that passage right there, I'm jumping way ahead here, so. I, I read this to you last week. I think this is really valuable to read again, though, okay? He says, in reference to your former way of life, you are to rid yourselves of the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit. Stop right there. What he's saying is, you got saved. And when you got saved, your sins were, you were forgiven. The sin was sent away. Not, not gonna hang over your head anymore. But more than that, you got a new heart. You got a, a Jesus heart. A Jesus DNA heart now. But your mind needs to catch up with your heart. And so the mind, the mind is the old self. My old way of thinking, my old way of looking at life, that's the old self, that's the old man here. And so I have, my mind has to be renewed. And that's why he goes on to say, he says, you are to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self, which you already have in your DNA. Now you just need to live it out by having your mind renewed which is in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. But this idea be renewed in the spirit of your minds is key to the whole concept of spiritual growth in general. And it is key to, to the idea of having healthier emotions. Now, I'm not gonna say healthy because we'll never get totally there, but healthier emotions. And we can make great strides. And I, I don't mean to say that if you're having a real emotional problem in your life, you can't overcome that. You can uh, it takes time sometimes. Sometimes the Holy Spirit just does it, you know, just like that. And that's what we pray for at the end of every service, for, for God just to intervene and do something outside the norm where we are just totally healed in the moment's time. But normally, there's some healing that happens at the moment, and then it takes time to renew our minds. But the spirit of your mind... The word spirit can mean Holy Spirit in the Bible. It can mean the spirit of a, a person. Um, it can mean an evil spirit. But when it's used in this way, spirit of, spirit of your mind, it's kind of like the spirit of thanksgiving. And when it says, well, you have the spirit of thanksgiving, you could, you could say, well, okay, you have the Holy Spirit and you're producing thanksgiving. But really what he's talking about is the spirit of thanksgiving is the deepest part of thanksgiving. You really, really connect with thanksgiving and you've really got it. So the spirit of your mind means the deepest part of your mind. And today people will call it your subconscious mind. And I don't wanna get into I mean, too much psycho uh, babble or anything like that, um, but, but um, and that, that's a pejorative term I know. Um, but um, it works like this. Have you ever, uh, you're talking to someone and they say, hey, you know that guy with red hair? And um, he always stands, you know, at this spot in the church service, and he does this with his arm when he worships. Do you know who he is? And I'm thinking, yeah, I know, I know. What's his name? Oh, I can't remember. And I bore down, and I really try hard to remember, 
Try, 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 can't remember. Sometimes I'll go through the alphabet and I'll say, is his name uh, Andrew, L, Aloysius, or whatever, you know, and, but, but I can't remember it. So then I walk away and I go for a walk or I read a book or I do something else and bingo, the name comes to me. It was in the part of my mind that I'm not accessing consciously at the moment. That's the subconscious mind. I mean, think of it that way. All sorts of stuff there that you're not accessing at the moment, but your brain knows it. And that's what happened to me in that issue we were discussing in the staff meeting. It was, you can say subconscious mind, or it's just, I wasn't just conscious of that thought at that very moment. That's the, that is the, um, the spirit of your mind. And my, my whole intent there is just to say that there is a subconscious mind which collects data, it collects experiences and emotions, and without us being aware of it often, that it's actually playing into what's happening. So, um, how, how, do we, how do we grow in this? Well, John 1, 12 and 13 is a fantastic passage that just gives us some basics on how to live the Christian life in general, but especially applying it to this context, I think it's significant. So John 1, 12 and 13 says this. says, as many as received him, prior to this, he says he came to his own, meaning the Jews, and his own received him not. Then it says, but as many as did receive him, in other words, those who believe in his name, to them he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So he says, those who receive Jesus are born of God. It's a supernatural birth. And he says, those ones have received the right. The word is authority, exousia. It means authority with power to enforce the authority. Okay, it's a great word. If you've received Jesus, you have authority. You have power. You've you've received authority specifically here to become children of God. Now, that doesn't mean I'm unsaved and then now I get saved. What he's talking about is you are saved. You are born of God. You have a new heart. You have a new identity, new spiritual DNA. And now you have authority to actually begin to live that out. And when it says children of God, the word child there is different words for child. Uh, One of them that's used, weos, is normally translated as son, but it refers to legal standing. This one does not refer to legal standing. This one refers to your origin. So you're born of God, and you now have authority to begin to demonstrate that, that you are really born of God. You know, that people are gonna look at you and say, you look like your father. They're gonna look at you and they're gonna say, you really have the characteristics of your father. Man, it's obvious that something changed your life, and it's obvious that God's in your life. Because I'm beginning to live it out. Does that make sense? to live out the new DNA, spiritual DNA he's put inside of me. I have authority to do that. And so how do we apply that authority? Well, the main way we apply that authority is by renewing our minds, changing the way we think about things, changing the way we believe about things. And at right moments, going back as I had to, and reevaluating that situation that happened that I have long forgotten, but it was still there and still influencing me. 
And so the idea of the mind being renewed is just a very powerful, powerful thing that will change us. It will just simply change us and it will impact our emotions in a powerful and profound way. Um, now something I don't wanna do, I don't want to make us all think that what we need to do is go on a deep dive into our, our subconscious minds and root out all of the problems that might be there or all of the, all of the missed thoughts I have or all the wrong belief systems I have. There are actually some counseling systems that try to do that. They'll take you through 12 steps or 15 steps or 20 steps to hit every possible emotional problem you have. And, and that's okay as long as the people leading it aren't saying you need to deal with all of these. We need to find every one of them. What we wanna find is the one God's working on right now. That's what we wanna find, don't you think? God, what are you doing right now? And when God shows us what we're doing right now, and that usually happens because of some event, like a staff meeting where I'm all emotional, and, and I, I don't think I was like jumping up and down and, and, or crying or anything like that. Not that there's anything wrong with crying. It's okay men to cry. But um, uh, it, 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 something like that will, will when, when that happens, we need to stop and say, hey, wait a second, what the heck's going on? I wanna show you an illustration. A good friend of mine, Bill Jackson, uh, pastored a church in Indianapolis. And in the 80s, when they first discovered inner healing, their church was just, just going wild with it and just digging in, digging in, and digging into inner healing more and more and more. And um, he said one of the prophets from his church had a vision. And she said she was standing in front of her mirror in the bathroom, and there was something wrong with her eye. And in the vision, or a dream, I can't remember which, she rubbed her eye. And when she pulled her hand away, her eye was blacker. It was like she had charcoal or something on her hand. And she rubbed more and it got darker. And then she's rubbing both eyes. And it ends up that both of her eyes end up just totally darkened because of, as she's rubbing, it didn't fix the problem, it created the problem. Does that make sense? So sometimes if we get overly introspective, not sometimes, we never wanna get overly introspective. So here's the illustration. Can we bring that illustration of the boat up, Estelle? All right. Here you see, um, this is a boat, you're in it. Jesus has given you the commission to sail that boat across the lake. There's something on the other side of the lake he wants you to do, you gotta sail across the lake, that's your mission. Now at the bottom of the lake, there are these balloons tied. And each one of those balloons represents some wound in your heart, some past event that you maybe didn't handle well or you didn't deal with at the time in a, in a freeing, healing way. And they're all down there. Uh, if you become overly introspective, what you do is you throw out an anchor and you swim to the bottom of that lake. Now the problem is, this is one of those lakes that has muck on the bottom, okay? <laughs> Have you ever been in a lake where you put your foot down and muck just swirls up? So you get down there and the more you try to find, the darker it gets because you're just stirring the muck up and you can't, you can't even see the problems anymore. Okay, let's look at the next slide, Estelle. All right, here's what we're supposed to do. We, our job is sell that boat across the lake. That's your mission, stick with your mission. God's job is to cut balloons at the right time. Balloon pops to the surface of anger or of fear or of anxiety or of some other just belief system you have that you're not even aware of. It pops to the surface. That's when you throw out the anchor and you deal with it, okay? 
but we don't want to become overly introspective, you know, just boring down, rubbing our eyes more and more and more until they're so sore we can't think right. That's what happens if we become too introspective. And again, lots of different systems of healing out there that take different approaches with, you know, with the right heart attitude, every one of them will work. So, we have said that emotions are indicators. Uh, they are not good or bad, but if I have an emotion that I assume is bad, what that does is it messes up the process of God working in my life to show me what he wants to th- show me through that emotion. Even something that we would all say is, is not a God of the characteristic like resentment or bitterness. I have to remain somewhat dispassionate about the emotion I'm experiencing. Because if I don't, it just complicates my emotions. If I'm experiencing resentment and then I think, oh man, this is a sin, I shouldn't be thinking, I should not be experiencing resentment, this is wrong, then I start to feel bad about feeling resentment, and then I'm gonna feel bad about feeling bad, and then I'm gonna feel bad about feeling bad about feeling bad, and, it, and you, just, you just go down this rabbit hole. And so you have to, we have to be able to say, I'm not gonna say this emotion is good or bad, I'm gonna say God's trying to tell me something. I'll evaluate the whole thing later, but God's trying to give me some input put right now. And I need to pay attention to what he's trying to tell me. And for instance, anxiety. You know, I, I feel anxious. And the, you know, the, the, the smart thing to do is to say, God, I'm feeling anxious right now, and I don't know why. And you invite the Holy Spirit to show you. And more often than not, he's gonna bring something to your mind. And you peruse the previous day and you realize at the end of the day in that meeting, your boss, whose approval you desperately desire, did not say goodbye to you when he left the meeting. He, he greeted a couple of other people, but he walked past you. And so you're feeling anxiety about that. So what you do then at that point is if you, if you have a good friend that you trust that's not gonna try to fix you or try to, try to um, evaluate you, you ask them, will you pray about this with me? And so you start praying, and the issue comes up that you need your boss's blessing to survive. I mean, you might even say that. Why is your, what, I might even ask, why do you need your boss's approval? And people might say, well, duh, I want the promotion. Or I want to keep my job, provision, life. If I lose my job, what am I going to do? So then the question would be, well, can you trust God with your future provision? Can I trust God? Am I trusting God with my future provision? And if I really say, you know, I'm really anxious about the future, I guess maybe I'm not trusting God like I should. And at that point, it might be that you stop and you start praying and, and God reveals to you a time when you were a kid or whatever where your mom or your dad lost their job and there was panic in the house and and you picked up on that panic and you've carried it with you ever since. That's an event that happened that you responded to emotionally that has carried forward into the effect in your life today of fearing about the future. And if that happened, then you just get prayer about that. You pray about it yourself and you reject the wrong belief system that you developed around that moment. But let's say you, you move on from there. Can I trust God with my future provision? Maybe even deeper than that is this. Maybe I'm saying, yeah, I can trust God, but, but I need this guy to approve of me so God can work. I mean, there's twisted theology that we get into. 
And, and unless we take the time to pray and let the Holy Spirit show us. And so if I really believe, man, I need this guy to approve of me in order for God to work and provide for me, then that adds this anxiety to my life that is gonna be so counterproductive. Whereas I get free from that. And I say, okay, God, you can provide for me through this job or through some other job. You can provide me, I'm trusting you. What that does is then, it releases the anxiety in your, relation, in your, work, in your workplace. You do a better job because you're not working out of anxiety. You end up with a better relationship with your boss because you're not coming to him with anxiety. And by the way, it's a hard thing for a boss to deal with when he has someone or she has someone working for them that just is craving their approval and just wants their approval so much. That's a hard thing. And, and so when you get rid of that, then there's just emotionally, you're dealing with it in, in a healthy way and the relationship itself improves. But there are things deeper behind the emotions. So resentment. Um, you know, you know, let's say I know why I feel resentment. I'm just gonna read through what I wrote here. God, I'm feeling resentment towards Ergel grew. She abuses my time, long phone calls, requests for help at inconvenient times. And I, so I feel resentment towards, anybody know where the word name Ergel grew comes from? Oh, come on, people. The office. There was a time in the office where Michael, Michael, who's this lonely, socially incompetent guy uh, told all of his employees that he had a girlfriend and so none of them believe him and they're questioning him about it. One of them says, well, what's her name? And he gets this kind of like look on his face like, and he's thinking and he says, Ergel grew. <laughs> so, so Ergel grew's in this story. <clears throat> and she apparently has some social distance, social issues, but so, so I asked the Holy Spirit to reveal what he wants to show me about this. And with a mature spiritual friend is all the better. So the Holy Spirit reveals that I don't have clear boundaries. Okay, wow, I gotta learn how to set clear boundaries. I need to learn how to say no in a kind, loving way and not feel guilty about it. But it has to go deeper than that. Because I, I have to ask then, uh, why do I have no clear boundaries? What is it that I believe about life that keeps me from having clear boundaries? And maybe you come down to this, that you've received teaching that real Christians are selfless. That real Christians will never say no to a request. That they will never say no to helping someone in need. And that's, that's a religious over spiritualized view of what it means to be selfless. Jesus was selfless. And there were times he stayed up late into the night healing people and teaching, and there were times he was just moved by compassion, but there were other times where Jesus would not allow people to de derail his fulfillment of his mission for God. And so selfless doesn't mean I let other people run my time and my life. Selfless means as I am pursuing the fulfillment of my mission for God, I, I am gonna be willing at times to take the long phone call. I am gonna be willing at times to be inconvenienced because it's the right thing to do, but not all the time and not all the time for one person. And so you come down to that and the person begins to realize then that okay, I have some things I gotta change about the way I view life and the way I view Christianity and the way I view myself. And so you've come down now to a deeper level of point where um, you, can, you can determine 
you can gain some healing, figure out why you believe that. Where were you taught that? Is that really true biblically? And you examine it and you reject that lie. God, it's a lie that I should always, always, always be at the beck and call of anyone who wants my time. That's a lie, I don't need to do that, God. And I'm gonna begin to replace that lie with the truth that I I want you, I'm always at your beck and call. I'm, I'm always ready to stop whatever I'm doing and listen to you and do whatever you want, but not, not other human beings. And so th- there's, there's just ways to deal with this that is so, so much better than how we often deal with it. But um, I wanna share with you a little about uh, panic attacks. Last week I shared about that time I, I busted my hand punching the wall. But um, th- there was... In the fall of 2009, 2008, 2009, 2010, right up into halfway through 2011, were really tough years for us as a church. And therefore, really tough years for me as a leader of a church. And, um, you know, when, when you have stresses and anxieties and you don't get them out, you don't talk about them, they just kind of like boil down there beneath the surface. And eventually, it impacts you. And so in the fall of 2009, I was teaching a class back in the multi-purpose room. And as I was back there teaching, towards the end of the class, fortunately this happened right at the end, my chest started to hurt. So I start feeling this pain right here. And it just starts expanding out to about, probably about a four, five, six inch circle right in the center of my chest. And I also start sweating and I start getting short of breath. Fortunately, I only had a couple sentences to speak and I ended the time and I just went straight to my office. By that time, my chest is just killing me and I'm having trouble breathing consistently and easily and I just laid down on the floor. And I thought, am I having a heart attack? And I'm lying there and I'm one that does not want to go to the emergency room at the, at the, you know, just on a whim. I mean, I just, I just always think, oh man, if I go to the emergency room, I'll spend all night there and they'll tell me it was nothing. So I'm lying there on the floor, pain, and I've never had a heart attack, so anyone who has had a heart attack here, I don't know what that's like. I, all I know is that they say that a panic attack is like a heart attack. And so I'd heard of panic attacks, so I thought, am I having a panic attack? And I crawled up into my chair and Googled heart attack or panic attack. Mayo Clinic came up, or WebMD, I'm not sure which one, and one of the first things they said was, if it's a heart attack, any exertion, walking up two or three steps will cause the pain to increase. And so I pulled myself up and I squeezed out a dozen jumping jacks. And the pain did not increase. So I laid back down on the floor and thought, okay, good. This is gonna pass. I did go to my doctor and talk to him about it. He said, yeah, you were having a panic attack. And then he talked to me about how I handle stress. And I'm sure I gave him some great answer that I know is the right answer, but probably wasn't the totally truthful answer. And um, here's how I was handling stress. Okay, let me set set this up by saying, there are days that I'll go outside and work. I'll go out with blue jeans and a shirt, maybe sometimes a long sleeve shirt. And I'll cut wood and I'll carry stones and I'll dig and wheelbarrows of stuff I'll move and just sweat like a stuck pig, as they say. 
And by the time, uh, you know, after four hours or so, I used to be able to do that all day. Now three hours is about my max. If I go four hours, I'm done. But by the end of my work period, I'm just soaked, soaked. My clothes are filthy. And I'll go to the back porch and I'll make sure the neighbors aren't looking. And I, I, we have a screened in porch and I'll disrobe there because this stuff is awful. I don't, want to take, I don't even want to take this into the house. And especially I don't want to throw it in the hamper with the other clothes. And so I'll just disrobe there, hang it all up and let it dry. But what I was doing emotionally was instead of getting the things out to dry and to hang out and dry, I, it, was, it was the equivalent of me taking all that sweaty clothing and just throwing it in the back of the closet. Shut the door. Or maybe even worse, throwing it in the hamper, but let's use the closet. So then I have another sweaty day of work and I, and I, and I get another sweat-laden set of clothes. I throw that in the closet and hang, close the door. You know, you can do that once or twice, but over time, it starts to smell. And that's not good. And so that's how I was handling any emotional type of, type of stuff I was facing. And um, I can talk about that now to you. I couldn't have talked about that to the church at that point. In fact, it wouldn't have been healthy for me to stand up front and talk about it. Because the whole church was in a tough season of time. And I had this, this notion that I had to be strong. And I do think in, in some respects, I needed to be strong. And, but, but on the other hand, I didn't need to be so strong that I never told anybody or never talked to anybody. And so there are several mis misbeliefs that I had at this time. Um, in fact, the time, just to describe, I felt like there was a cloud. There were times sitting here, right down here, where I knew I'm gonna go up and preach in 10 minutes, and I'm sitting there just saying, oh God, this is the last thing in the world I wanna do. Can, just, can we have an earthquake right now? Just a small one or a small tornado that doesn't really hit the building, but it's enough that the service will be canceled and I won't have to walk up there. Many times that I felt that way. And many times, oddly enough, I would get up and it was as if I just walked out from under that cloud. And I'd walk up here and I would feel God's goodness and I would feel his pleasure, and I would be able to give a message that, I don't know if they were the best messages ever or anything like that, but I was able to give a message that people responded to and, and impacted their lives. But then the weird thing was, when I walked back to that seat, I walked back into that cloud. And I don't know why. Um, I don't know how that works. I rebuked everything under the sun. But, but I, well, here's why. Because I was trying to, I was trying to use the wrong process. I'm using rebuke Satan when what I should have been using is open up your heart to somebody. Sit down with somebody you trust and open up your heart to them. And I didn't want to like overburden Lori with all of this. I mean, I know she knew I was going through difficulty, but I didn't want to go home every day and have her say, well, how was it? Oh, it was hell today. You know, dark, dark, dark. I, it just wouldn't seem right to me to do that. And I had this notion that there was no one else I could talk to, but now I look back on it and I say, no, there were people here I could have talked to. People in the room right now that I could have talked to. And I, could, and, I, and I would have received love and grace and support. But at the time, it just seemed like I couldn't do that. And so, um, early 2010, 
Lori and I went to a movie, to the movie Taken. We took Luke and Will and two or three of their friends, and they're sitting somewhere right up front, and we're, we're sitting in a, a, where we are. Before the movie started, and my chest started to hurt again. Now this time, I panicked because of that. I thought, oh no, I don't wanna do this again. But then I told myself, no, I survived this before. I can survive it again. And so my chest starts hurting more and more and more, and I start sweating profusely this time, and I, I, my whole body's hurting, and I wanted to just, I looked down at the floor, and it was grimy and filthy, and I thought, I don't care. I could just lie down on the floor. I didn't because it was filthy and grimy, but I was tempted to. <laughs> Lori said, I'm gonna call 911. I said, no, this is just a panic attack like before, I'll get over it, and which I did after several minutes, um, I, maybe 10 minutes, and, and it faded, and, and it fades gradually when it fades. This one came on stronger and faster than the first one, but um, then we watched this movie Taken. Have you ever seen the movie Taken? I don't think there's any more tension-filled movie on the planet than that. That movie is enough to give anybody a panic attack, no matter where you are. And so somehow we watched it and I weathered that. But again, it comes back to this, that you need to talk to people. That's how God's designed us. That's what fellowship is. That's what weeping with those who weep means. That's what rejoicing with those who rejoice means. And I had people I could have gone to that would have wept with me, if that's not, not necessarily literally, but they would have listened and, and it would have really helped me so much. But I leave you with that. I just get well, one more thing. I give that to you that especially men, I think we've got to be more open. We've got to humble ourselves. We've got, we got to be willing to say, I'm going through a tough time. Can I just talk about it? I'm not looking for answers. I'm looking for maybe some prayer support and, and a friend I can tell this to so I can verbalize it. And then when you rebuke Satan, he's gonna flee because you've, because you've followed God's process of community and relationship and humility and openness. But there is that spiritual element. It's often, um, often almost always involved to some degree where there's direct spiritual attack based on doors we open door I opened was not talking to anybody. That I was opening a door there. Um, I needed to slam that door before I tried to kick the devil out, before I tried to re rebuke. And, and I'm not saying that there's never a time that you rebuke the enemy and he doesn't flee just because, and you didn't have gone through the process of right, I get that. But uh, Ephesians says, don't let the sun go down on your anger and give the devil an op don't give the devil an opportunity. That opportunity means a foothold. And so there are things that we can do when we, when we um, in our lives that actually give the enemy an actual opportunity to get a foothold. That's like a beachhead, and then he can send all sorts of operations out into our lives from that beachhead. But you know something else that happens? And if that happens, what you do is you find out how'd you give, where'd you give up the beachhead? How'd you do that? What door did you open? Close the door, get someone to pray with you over it, and, and then you'll, you'll be free. But um, another thing that happens is, I said earlier, demons have emotions. James 4, 7 says, uh, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. But uh, back up here, James two nineteen says, you believe that God's one, you do well. One, not one, W-O-N, but one, O-N-E. The demons also believe and shudder in fear. 
there are times, you know, as believers, we are made to be sensitive to the spiritual realm. Some people are more sensitive, some people are less sensitive. There are times anxiety comes from nowhere. And you just feel, and you, why do I feel this anxiety? And there's no answer that you get from God or from nothing, nothing comes up. And in those cases, it could be that you're sensing the anxiety of a demon that's near you. And this is not something to be afraid of, okay? It's just part of life, part of the reality of life. And it could be that you're sensing the fear of a demon near you. That demon, maybe it has the assignment of disrupting what you're trying to do, but it's, it realizes it's fighting a losing battle and it doesn't want to go back to headquarters with a bad report. And so it's filled with anxiety because its boss is going to get after it. And you're, you're sensing that. If that's the case, then you just cut that off. You just say, okay, uh, I don't think this anxiety is mine and I'm rejecting it in Jesus' name. And if you do, it'll be gone like that. One final thing. Uh, there was one time we came home when they were having a house group and it was really just booming first year of house group. Lori and I came home around 10, 30, 11 o'clock. They had had 80 people at our house that night. Wilson came running up. Oh, we pulled in and Lori said, did you just expel gas? And I said, no, why? <laughs> and she said, well, something smells bad. I opened the door and this wave of sulfur wafted by, kind of like fireworks. I looked around, I thought someone's firing off fireworks. I looked around, there's no one anywhere, no neighbors shooting off fireworks. And then Wilson comes running up to me saying, Dad, Dad, we had this powerful demonic deliverance happen just, just a few moments ago, right down there. And, and I just said, that's the smell right there, because I've experienced that before, where when an evil spirit leaves, it leaves behind um, an odor, an odor that wasn't there before. And I don't know, how, I don't know what to make of that. But uh, so there's that smell. So we go in the house. Luke comes running upstairs. And he says, uh, he was calling me Mr. Cochran in those days. He said, Mr. Cochran, I'm so sorry, but I opened the basement door and left this horrible smell come into the house. Your sump, it must be your sump pump that's wrong. And I said, no, we, we fixed the sump pump two weeks ago. We had that cleaned out and everything. I said, here, watch this. And I knew this because we'd done it before. I said, in Jesus' name, if this smell has anything to do with that demonic expulsion tonight, I command it to cease and desist right now, now. And it ended just like that. It was gone. It was just gone just like that. So it's real. That's just a real world. Yeah. Give it up for the Lord. Yeah. So in those cases, we just say um, Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. And part of that is the misbeliefs that we have that uh, as the bloom pops, we deal with it. And we deal with it in a godly way and, and to honor him. So would you stand with me? I'm just going to pray. We have a war, our prayer teams. Would you make your way down right now, please? Don't be afraid to come for prayer. Just be willing to come just to say, okay, I don't care what anybody thinks. I need prayer. I'm going to come and get prayer right now. So, uh, Holy Spirit, just speak to our hearts right now. Reveal to us different places, different areas in our belief systems that you want to work. And, and, and maybe, Lord, right now, I would ask just one per person. And uh, if, if one comes to your mind, come down and get prayer for it right now. And, uh, and then, and then you'll, you'll be, enter onto the pathway of correcting that wrong thought and getting healing in that area. So, Father, thank you for your goodness. Let us walk in your freedom in Jesus' name. Amen.